What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes, and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to the Opus an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy. Each season and every month, we delve into an album's inner workings and lasting impact. What makes a record not only withstand the test of time, but continue to influence and grow with its audience? I'm your host, Carrie Corgan, and for the next three weeks, we're immersing ourselves in an album that continues to shape the popular musical landscape. Jeff Buckley's Grace. Maybe you're a longtime fan who wants to dive deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener curious for more. Either way, you're in the right place. This is our last goodbye. I hate to feel the love between us now. But it's over. I just do this and then I'll go. You gave me more to Grace hit record store shelves in 1994 amidst an era driven by hypermasculine alt-rock. Buckley's sound was the antithesis of the popular norm. His music is genre-defying and laced with a rare embracement of femininity. Twenty-five years later, this record's eschewing of boundaries is a landmark moment, and the effects are lasting. In this episode, I'm joined by critics, musicians, and Buckley fans. Daphne A. Brooks, Lizzie Hale, Miles Kennedy, and Annie Zaleski. Together, we're exploring Buckley's continued influence in our post-genre present and how the qualities that made Grace an enigma in 1994 are what's made Buckley's music an enduring force today.
Grace is a weighty record. As Buckley's full-length studio debut, its 52 minutes are packed full of chameleonic changes in genre and mood. Everything from bombastic, riff-heavy cuts and hauntingly delicate corals to a unique array of covers. It's also the only complete studio album we ever got from Buckley, one that will forever be inextricably linked with his sudden, tragic death just three years later. Jeff Buckley had music in his blood. He's the son of folk singer-songwriter Tim Buckley, a man he only met once, and was raised by his mother, a classically trained pianist and cellist, and a stepfather who introduced him to all the names of the 70s rock canon, from Led Zeppelin to Queen. He began playing guitar at the age of five, and by the time he graduated high school, was well on his way to pursuing music full-time. Though Buckley initially spent six years gigging in a variety of bands across a spectrum of styles, from jazz to heavy metal, the turning point in his career came in 1991, when he famously, and somewhat begrudgingly, made his public debut at a New York tribute concert for his father called Greetings from Tim Buckley. After years of attempts to make his way into the elusive music industry, a door had finally opened. Buckley spent the next two years cutting his teeth in the downtown cafes of New York, most notably the Chenet Cafe on the Lower East Side. His sets were eclectic, to say the least. Covers of Billie Holiday and Judy Garland were interspersed with haunting takes on the Smiths and Leonard Cohen, and this array of influences would inspire the diverse sounds of original songs that he began performing there, songs that eventually attracted attention from major label heads and made their way onto his debut album, Grace. Your faith was strong, but you needed proof You saw her bathing on the roof Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you And she tied you to her kitchen chair And she broke your throne and she cut your hair And from your lips she drew the hallelujah Grace's notoriety was a slow burn. Released in the height of alt-rock, there was something different about it that people couldn't quite put their fingers on. It wasn't an instant bargain bin regulation, but it wasn't a hit either. Its peak chart position was 149. In the ensuing years, though, it's become one of those albums, the kind whose inexplicable magic finds people, nestles next to their hearts, and changes the way they view the world, and importantly, the way they create. The album can't really be classified strictly into any of the musical subcultures booming in the 90s. It's more personal than that, drawing influence from the music of Buckley's past and present alike. It exudes a powerful timelessness that endears itself to be continually passed down from generation to generation. Grace is the kind of album that catches you in such a way that you can't forget your first impression. There's always a story there. So I asked my guests when they first discovered it. I was a graduate student in UCLA. I'd grown up loving rock and roll and a whole range of popular music cultures, having been raised in the Bay Area. But by my mid-twenties and the grunge, riot girl, gangster rap, hip-hop revolution, I was particularly taken with um, going to live shows in L.A., in addition to going to live shows. had also grown up going to record stores. My connection to the record store culture and to 
buying all of the different rock and hip hop rags from Rolling Stone to Vibe, having the subscription to those magazines, led me to an issue of Spin that included a fancy mixtape. Back in the day, this would happen every once in a while. And on that mixtape was Jeff Buckley's Eternal Life. That's Daphne A. Brooks, professor of African-American studies at Yale University and author of the 33 and a Third anthology series volume on grace. It stopped me in my tracks. I was listening to it in the car, and I remember thinking, that voice, that does not sound like a voice of right now. The beautiful, angst-ridden, revisionist masculinity of Kurt Cobain or Eddie Vedder, those were important white male voices in rock who pushed up against hetero-conventional masculinity in all sorts of very powerful ways. But this was a voice that was really robust and sexy and full of swagger. I think there was a little bit of a retro tinge. I remember thinking immediately, he's probably British. (laughs) I don't know why I thought that. Buckley's unique voice being outside of time and place made it stand out in the crowd as it did for Lizzie Hale, the lead singer and co-founder of rock band Hailstorm. I actually was introduced to Grace through my guitar player, Joe. When we first met, I was 19 and I was showing him like 70s and 80s rock. And uh, so we started trading CDs back and forth. Like, okay, well, if you think that's good, then you, you know, (laughs) check this out. And he gave me Grace and it blew my mind because I had heard of Jeff Buckley, you know, and I had heard some stuff on the radio just like throughout the years, you know, but I had never really dug into that record. And it's just amazing. You can go back to this record a million times. You can still learn something new, you know, every single time you listen to it, there's something else that maybe you missed throughout the years. And it's a beautiful body of work. I remember, I think it was in late 1994. I didn't have a dishwasher. I was a struggling young artist and I was drying the dishes and I heard something come from the TV. And I remember, I I think I actually dropped the dish that I was washing. It might have broke it because I I ran to the other room to to make sure I was able to discover where was this angelic voice coming from and what was it. This is Miles Kennedy, guitarist and singer in the rock band Alter Bridge. He's also a frequent collaborator of Slash, in addition to being a solo artist in his own right. I, the next day, ordered his record. It came a few weeks later. It was, I don't even know how to articulate it other than it was like a sonic revelation. I'd never heard anything quite like it. I don't remember anything having that kind of impact on me that quickly and that immediately. It was a very special album. Not every first time is a dish-dropping moment. Sometimes Grace takes its time wooing you into an inevitable love affair, as was the case for Annie Zaleski. It's funny because I think my relationship and coming across Grace was over a few years. I listened to the radio a ton as a kid. And so I definitely heard Last Goodbye on the radio. And I distinctly remember because it sounded so different from everything else that was on the radio at that time. Annie is a writer, editor, and journalist whose work has appeared in publications such as Rolling Stone, Spin, and Billboard. Alternative rock was just such a grab bag of really interesting things, but it really stood out. I distinctly remember being in college in the late 90s, and I remember picking up Grace it was like they, they used to have like used CD bins or like bargain CD bins. And I really connected with the entire thing. I think it, I was a little bit older and just, you know, I just really connected with it. One of the most common observations from people who first heard Grace in the mid-90s was that it was just different. It was inexplicably unlike anything else on the radio. But 
What exactly did the popular music landscape look like then? I looked up when Last Goodbye charted. That was the big hit, and it basically charted at number 19 on the modern rock charts. That was his kind of biggest hit. And I looked at the chart that week just to kind of see, you know, what else the flavor was that particular week. And that song was in between Oasis' Live Forever and Everything Zen by Bush. I think that is sort of a microcosm of 1995. Things were so all over the map. I mean, Kurt Cobain had passed away the year before and grunge had been around for a couple of years now. And so everyone was kind of trying to figure out what's next. You know, what is the next sound? Because at that point, you kind of had the roots of the jam band stuff. You know, Dave Matthews band was just coming up. Hootie and the Blowfish were starting to kind of hit. Blues Traveler was there. But then you had bands like Pearl Jam, who were a couple albums in at that point, and were really sort of exploring new vistas. They were sort of already tired of their kind of heavy rock and were kind of going toward more folk and punk. Green Day was still extremely popular with Dookie. But then you had Bjork that had come out and you had Letters to Cleo and Elastica. So there was this just very, very interesting sort of melting pot of influences from all different eras that were kind of coming together. And Jeff just really stood out because the record just sounded like it was from another planet. I think that was part of what captivated me because at the time, grunge was still pretty important and it was very masculine. And part of the allure for what Jeff was doing was that he was able to kind of bridge that gap, but still had a certain intensity. Speaking for myself, that record in particular was a guidepost for me as a young artist, because though I liked what was happening at the time, you know, I thought grunge was cool. It wasn't something that I felt like I was going to feed off of constantly uh, because I, I knew that that wasn't where I was most comfortable. And that was the beauty of the grace. I heard that and was like, oh, there's this duality here and there's this musicality. There's a, it was a very sophisticated record. You know, harmonically speaking, when you listen to what he was doing on the guitar, I mean, that wasn't just detuned power chords you know, turned up with a lot of distortion. I mean, that was pretty intense <laughs> and, and smart. And that really resonated with me and, and a lot of other young artists. He sounded, you know, unlike anybody else that was on popular radio at the time. But it's interesting when you listen to his work, there was no thought behind that. It just it feels so effortless. I guess let's put it this way. He in a time where everybody was trying to be something, he was just himself. Around this time, there was a lot of hyper-masculinity in the male rock set, the lingering cock-rock aesthetic of the 70s and 80s evolving further, with popular 90s alt-rock becoming ironically referred to as butt-rock. Buckley couldn't have skewed further in the opposite direction. He was an artist of extreme sensitivity. Just listen to the excerpt from his famous Much Music interview in 94, defining what he was trying to convey with Grace's title track. The song itself, it's an elegy. To no one. I always describe it as, you know, not fearing anything, any one, any man, any woman, any war, any gun, any sling or arrow, aimed at your heart by other people because there is somebody finally who loves you for real. 
and that you can achieve a real state of grace through somebody else's love in you. It keeps you from reaching for the gun too quickly. It keeps you from destroying things too foolishly. It sort of keeps you alive. And it keeps you open for more understanding when you're totally out of fuel and totally out of understanding. It's a song about my death, but not fearing it. This was a kind of vulnerability not often reserved for men. Especially uncommon were men who could channel the raw, masculine sexuality and power of rock bands like Led Zeppelin, but just as easily offer something tender as well. He had both of those sides. At the time, it kind of felt like you could be either or. You know, you were either very, very heavy and you were very sort of in your face. And this was even before new metal. Or there was the whole kind of folk and sort of the lightness. And you were a little bit more delicate and sensitive. For a guy, that kind of sensitivity, there's no posturing and there's no puffing out of the chest and there's no, I'm trying to be more badass than I actually am. You know, it was just him and he's telling his truth. And I think that's something that either comes naturally or not. And for him, it was so beautiful the way that his lyrics were absolute poetry. They could make you view love in a different way. And he wasn't scared to talk about that stuff either. He wasn't scared to talk about love, but also hope and heartache and all these things that people go through. And he obviously, the things that he was going through in his life and what I enjoy about this record specifically is that it kind of runs the gamut with that. It starts out with Mojo Pin, and that's just such a beautiful, but also just sensual song. And Last Goodbye is so sad. And we used to cover Lover, You Should Have Come Over. And I swear, like, I remember learning it to cover it and really digging into the lyrics there. It's that beautiful in-between where it's like, you're not with this person anymore, but maybe there's still hope (laughs) that things could like just go back to the way things were. And and nobody ever talks about those like in-between moments in relationships and how we're just always hoping for that human connection. And even if we know it's not good for us, we go back to it because it's safe. It was just so wonderful to hear somebody talk about those things. It wasn't like, well, here's this singer-songwriter guy touching into more of the feminine aspect, not ever stepping foot into the really intense guitar approach and that incredible scream that he had. It was the way that he would bounce between those two things, and it was effortless. And it was that sense of dynamics that he had that was so unique and so special. It could be so delicate, but yet a minute later, it would just beat you over the head and practically mount your unconscious with the power of his upper register when he'd done it. It was amazing. It really was. I believe if that record hadn't come out and I hadn't discovered Jeff's music and the idea of that duality to kind of the feminine and the masculine, I really don't know how my career would have evolved because he made that all right for me. That record said to me, it's okay to embrace both. Disregarding the emotional boundaries of gender was only one facet of how Buckley defied conventions. The clearest example was the music he was making. Grace itself, you can't pigeonhole it. You know, they have kind of funky rock that sounds like almost the Red Hot Chili Peppers. 
but then you have these really delicate songs that sound like they should be in a cathedral, or you have these folk songs playing in a coffee shop. So it's just very, very diverse, and it all is woven together in a really, really skillful way. It doesn't sound like a car crash or kind of a mishmash of things. It's just very seamless. I think the hangover in people coming to Jeff's music over time is because of the fact that it's quite hard to pigeonhole. All of those kind of nostalgic aesthetics are then scrambled by the ways that he put those sounds together, kind of pipelined through a Gen X sensibility. You could hear Nina Simone and Led Zeppelin, which was unusual to juxtapose in a beat, but then it was mixed up with his love of the Melvins and the Cocteau Twins. But precisely because of that, I think it's a record that people are going to keep coming back to again and again. It's really a compendium of popular music culture of the last, if not quarter century, half a century, because he was really gifting us with his long cultural memory and having grown up in the 70s and 80s as a Gen Xer. He was really, he was pulling all of that music together that had made him, but then putting it in dialogue with the music of the moment that was keeping him alive. Being in the hard rock genre, everybody kind of assumes like, oh, well, you know, you're listening to ACDC or Lamb of God or <laughs> you know, those kind of things. And I do, I listen to all those things. But this album kind of transcends genres. There's no genre. There's no gender to it. It isn't trying to be anything that it's not. I think it's about the moments with his songs. It's about the musical moments, but he didn't stop with, okay, here's the chorus. And that's the biggest part of the song. There was always a way to either go left or right, or just elevate the song. Just when you think you understand the moment that is happening in the song, he ups it one more with the next phrase. Everything flows. There's nothing wedged in there. It just all flowed so beautifully. But there were so many different parts that made you go, oh, yeah, that was the part. Oh, wait, no, he didn't even get to the climax of the song yet. And you thought that was the climax. It was just one of those songs where it's like, man, I want to know what that feels like to perform that. You know, it's like it's what you absorb, you know, and then maybe some of that will come out in some of your own songs. So it was my way of trying to catch some magic. <laughs> Jeff is one of those things where I think that no matter who you are, whether you're a Slayer fan or you're a Taylor Swift fan, I think that you can listen to this record and get so much out of it. And you think about legends, right? And you think about any band that you consider a legendary band, ACDC or Led Zeppelin or Metallica or whatever it is, there isn't this one specific thing that they are. And that's what I think makes a great artist and a great band is that your base level is just, if it's good music, it's good music. You can listen to any type of music and take something from it, even if it's not necessarily a radio station genre that, that you're used to dialing into. The fact that you can take something good away from anything, I think, is important. Plenty of records both reflect the time they were made in, while also transcending that time to find commonality across multiple generations. But Grace, for all its sheen, only exists as a 90s record because that's what the copyright date tells us. It sounds like no other album from the early 90s. It was immediately singular unto itself. Its lack of timeliness made it timeless. But that also made it difficult to fully appreciate in the moment. Especially with the time when he came out, people kind of wanted to know, what, what were you? What did you identify as? You know, musical subcultures and musical niches were still very much baked into your identity. 
Now people can kind of veer between genres. But back then, it was definitely very segmented. They didn't fit into any of those little boxes. And nor did he want to. And luckily, he had people around him who really kind of encouraged that and kind of helped steer him into different directions and help him figure out what he wanted to be. But they didn't necessarily try to say, okay, well, you should go in just this heavy direction or you should go all in this kind of very sensitive, folky direction. And that was a rare thing to find. Famously, we know that Columbia really invested in him as literally what they called a legacy artist. They really thought he was going to be in the arc of some of their other incredibly iconic artists like Dylan and Springsteen. And the label had, they were boomers who had a particular kind of nostalgic investment in Jeff Buckley's sound, which I think made him a complicated figure to Gen Xers in some ways. This wasn't Jeff Buckley's fault, but you know he was such a liminal figure in terms of all of the different sounds that he was bringing into his repertoire. And boomers were drawn to him because of that nostalgia. The album, I think, landed squarely in the run of being legible and appealing those boomers, white male boomers in particular, who were tracking on a sound, and less appealing and less immediately accessible to people of Jeff's age, like myself, Gen Xers who were primed for this revolution, who were ready to completely disassemble the system and the conventions of rock and roll in very particular ways, which again were quite powerful and that he was invested in. But it was an album that did not circulate on a popular level when it first was released. Records are consistent, unchangeable objects. The sounds, lyrics, and emotions contained within are frozen forever. What changes is our relationship to them. But though the content stays static, the record continues to evolve alongside the adults who've grown with grace. Each different lifetime that I've kind of lived in this band, I can always go back to this record and be like, what have I missed? There's so many different layers to it. And I think that when all of those things come together perfectly, that makes one of those legendary records. You can have like the great performance talent as in like, okay, you're singing these crazy high notes. That's awesome. You're just shredding on that guitar. And it's that's amazing, too. But then if the lyrics don't necessarily match with the music or they're competing in that vibe, then there's going to be something a little off about it. And maybe you're not even going to really know what that is, but you're not necessarily going to listen to it as often as maybe you would. But when all of those things come together and the performance aspect and the songwriting aspect, and you're making these musical moments that just make you feel elated when they go by, when that all comes together too, it just creates this perfect storm. That's the power of music because then the possibilities are endless. And even though I've heard Lover, You Should Have Come Over a million times, even though I've heard Dream Brother a million times, even though I've heard Eternal Life a thousand times, you know, whatever it is, whatever song, you can listen to it now and relate to something even differently than where you were before. I feel like I've evolved and learned certain things as a musician, but the sense of awe that I get when I listen to it hasn't diminished a bit. If, if anything, it's intensified. I still see that it was such an, a unique gift that just doesn't come along ever <laughs> to that degree. I think that there's a reverence that I have that only continues to grow. I've said this before, and I will always say this. Ultimately, I feel like I owe a lot of the good fortune I've had as a musician to him and to that record. And if I ever had had the chance to meet him, I, I would have thanked him. 
because I definitely feel like I owe a debt to Jeff Buckley, without a doubt. I do think, and I haven't really ever articulated this, but I think in this moment, especially during a deep nadir in U.S. history, it's something that is, you know, a nadir that keeps rearing itself in a variety of different ways across time. But this nadir of white supremacist misogyny is so powerful and so palpable and such an urgent threat right now that I kind of feel like his music with its combination of mournfulness and also, again, that kind of um, resistant, sensual power is something that we need right now. This is an album that's weathered the changing landscape of the music industry over the past 25 years. Albums as events are a thing of the past. There are no more traditional rock stars. The way the majority of us consume music now is in playlist form. And what's more, our world is just more fluid. 2019 is really a new frontier for music in which you don't have to be a certain gender or race or sexuality to make a certain type of music, and you don't have to fit into one easily classifiable genre either. I'm curious how Grace, having set a precedent for such rule-breaking 25 years ago, would be received if it were released in today's world. If Grace were released today, I honestly think it would be a bigger hit. Because, you know, 1994, when it came out, it still wasn't very common to have the internet at home. And so in terms of getting information, finding out about music, you were still sort of limited to the radio and MTV and music magazines. There were just fewer channels to kind of explore music. It's so much more democratic now. I think so many more people would hear about him. He would get New York Times features, but he would also get Pitchfork features, and he would be on podcasts. Like, I think that he would just have a much, much more kind of magnified reputation than when he came out then. And he did get press, you know, back then when he came out, obviously, because his dad was famous. There was a little bit of that as well. And just because the record was so striking, I mean, there was a bidding war to kind of sign him to Columbia. So, you know, there, he definitely got attention, but I think he might be a little bit more of a mainstream name at this point. People's attention spans are so different now, and there's so much to consume. So I don't know, but maybe I'm a little biased here because I believe it's so important and so good, and I feel like it is a timeless record, that I think it still would have found its place, maybe more so, maybe because of the internet and because of social media, more people would have discovered it immediately. I mean, I think that that's what's interesting about Grace is it's not like that record came out and it was flying off the shelves. It took a little while for that album to be discovered. And a lot of people discovered it through his cover of Hallelujah. But with the internet now, who knows? It might have been different. Because people listen to music differently and they tend to go to the songs they like, I wonder if it would have been one of those things like, oh, there's this record and check out the song Hallelujah. And they would just listen to Hallelujah and miss digesting that record as a body of work. Long before we had iTunes and um, Spotify and Apple Music, Long before we had this kind of digital revolution that has enabled our next generation to rove far beyond the kind of AOR playlist categories that have historically been racially segregated, often gender segregated as well. Long before that began to break down, where you could have kids listening to, you know, a whole heterogeneous array of artists and genres. Long before that, you know, Buckley was that. And it was, as a black feminist, as an African-American who was just a couple of years younger than him, who grew up in the same era as him, it meant everything to me to see a white guy with a famous last name in certain circles, incredibly attractive, 
All of this to say, he didn't have to open his heart to all these different ways of being. You know, he had white male privilege on his doorstep. His personal story is different from that. But, you know, socially had a lot of doors that were opening to him once he became a sensation on the Lower East Side. But his way of being was the way that we dream of imagining what our world could be like if white men in particular were comfortable with their own vulnerability, valued a range of art made by women and people of color, as well as dudes who could rock really hard. He represented the best of what a certain kind of contemporary racialized masculinity could be. And we need more of that. We need Jeff Buckley's right now. He was an ally. He was a sonic ally to me. And music we know is one of the most potent and transformative kinds of art that allows us to imagine being connected to one another. So for that kind of a person to have made that kind of music, he was a revolutionary. And Lord knows we need a revolution right now. Through the next two episodes, we're going beyond the music, discussing how the record's mythology was shaped by Jeff Buckley's tragic death and examining the delicate work of keeping a musician's legacy alive. I'm excited to re-debut the opus here on Consequence Podcast Network. Each month, we're covering a new record in a three-part series. And over at consequenceofsound.net, you'll find additional articles exploring the record and the artists. Coming up this month, you'll find pieces like the 10 Best Jeff Buckley Covers by the Opposite Sex, and hear additional modern musicians share what grace means to them. To keep up with the articles, podcasts, and everything we have in store for this season, find us on Facebook at The Opus CPN or consequenceofsound.net slash The Opus. I'd love to know what you think about the show. Maybe give The Opus a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, or check out Podchaser, where you can review and discuss each episode. I'd love to share some of your feedback here. And if you want to chat more, you can find me on Twitter at Carrie Corgan, C-A-R-R-I-E-C-O-U-R-O-G-E-N. I want to thank our guests, Daphne A. Brooks, Lizzie Hale, Miles Kennedy, and Annie Zaleski for all of their valuable insights. In addition to her 33 and a third book on grace, you might want to check out Daphne A. Brooks's other work, Bodies in Descent, Spectacular Performances of Race and Freedom, 1850 to 1910. And she's currently working on a three-volume study of Black women in popular music culture, Subterranean Blues, Black Women Sound Modernity. Annie Zaleski also has some books in the works, Why the B-52s Matter for the University of Texas Press, and a volume in the 33 and a third series on Duran Duran's Rio. Be sure to follow Jeff Buckley on Spotify and Apple to keep abreast of any forthcoming releases. Or, hey, have you been to your local brick-and-mortar record store in a while? Hop on down, flip through the bins, and maybe pick up a copy of Grace while you're at it. The Opus is a co-production between Consequence of Sound and Sony. Written and hosted by Carrie Corgan and recorded in New York City at ACAST by Ali Sprung and Tim Ruggieri. Editing and production by Cap Blackard. Our theme music is Coach Hop, 
find more at coachhop.bandcamp.com. Series artwork by Stephen Fish. Consequence Podcast Network. Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found.